Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Welcome to Scotiabank's 2020 first quarter results presentation. My name is Philip Smith, Senior Vice President of Investor Relations. Presenting to you this morning is Brian Porter, Scotiabank's President and Chief Executive Officer, Raj Viswanathan, our Chief Financial Officer, and Daniel Moore, our Chief Risk Officer. Following our comments, we'll be glad to take your questions. Also present to take questions today are the following Scotiabank Executives. Dan Rees from Canadian Banking, Nacho Deschamps from International Banking, Jake Lawrence and James Neat from Global Banking and Markets, and Glenn Gowland from Global Wealth Management. Before we start, and on behalf of those speaking today, I will refer you to slide two of our presentation, which contains Scotiabank's caution regarding forward-looking statements. With that, I will now turn the call over to Brian Porter. Thank you, Phil, and good morning, everyone. Today, we announced first quarter earnings of $2.3 billion. The quarter marked a very good start to the year with adjusted earnings per share increasing 5% from a year ago and return on equity increasing to 13.9%. The bank also produced positive operating leverage with good revenue growth and prudent expense management. The bank's underlying performance which excludes the impact of divestitures, was even stronger with earnings growth over 7%. Revenue growth was solid, net interest margins remain stable, credit quality is high, and our capital position has improved. Our performance reflects the strength of our diversified product mix and our geographic focus on the Americas, which we have been working towards over the past number of years. I am pleased with the results in the quarter, which highlights both the importance of diversification and scale in our six core markets. Canadian banking produced solid earnings growth, positive operating leverage, and an improved productivity ratio. We also saw significantly improved results in global banking and markets and global wealth management, which more than offset slightly weaker results in international banking. I think it is important to put international banking results into context. Going into this quarter, the business had posted 18 consecutive quarters of earnings growth. This was due, in part, to the strong fundamentals of our core markets in the Pacific Alliance. As we continue to see improvement in the outlook for both Mexico and Chile, we expect international banking to have stronger results for the balance of the year. We experienced strong growth in our fee-based businesses with non-interest revenue increasing in the high single digits year over year, which is important to driving growth in a low interest rate environment. We demonstrated further progress against our strategy to simplify and de-risk the bank with a reduction of our investment in TMB Bank in Thailand and the closing of the sale of our operations in Puerto Rico, the US Virgin Islands, and El Salvador. As I mentioned at our recent investor day, the repositioning of the bank is substantially complete and our acquisitions have been successfully integrated. Going forward, our operating performance will continue to benefit from a simpler, more focused bank. Turning to the balance sheet, asset growth was solid in the quarter and asset quality remains strong with a decrease in gross impaired loans reflecting the impact of recent divestitures. The bank's PCLs and net formations ratio were also stable. In addition, the bank's risk-weighted asset density has declined. This is further evidence of our efforts to de-risk the bank while increasing returns to our shareholders. While there has been considerable media attention given to rising consumer insolvencies in Canada, our credit trends are stable with retail delinquencies in Canada unchanged year over year. In addition, 93% of our loan portfolio in Canadian banking is secured. 
Daniel will provide further comments later in the call. In terms of capital management, our common equity tier one capital ratio improved in the quarter, reflecting good internal capital generation and the positive impact of divestitures, which allowed us to invest in organic growth and maintain an active share buyback program. We will continue to be an active buyer of our shares. Our efforts in digital banking continue to make steady progress. Our leading levels of technology investment are continuing to drive growth in digital sales and digital adoption. In-branch transactions continue to decline as customers increasingly favor digital and mobile channels for day-to-day -day transactions. We are close to achieving our goal of less than 10% of transactions being completed in-branch. This will allow us to focus on delivering more value-added advisory services throughout our branch network. We remain focused on realizing the digital dividend for our technology investments in the form of higher digital adoption and a lower productivity ratio. The bank's commitment to ESG advanced in, in the first quarter as we committed to mobilizing $100 billion by 2025 to reduce impacts of climate change, and we have been recognized for our climate change governance and greenhouse gas reduction initiatives. I will now turn the call over to Raj, who will provide a more detailed summary of our results. Thank you, Brian, and good morning, everyone. I'll start on slide five. The bank delivered $2.3 billion in earnings and a diluted earnings per share of $1.83 for the quarter, up 2% and 5% respectively compared to last year. Divested operations reduced net income by $109 million on a net basis and diluted earnings per share by approximately $0.09 cents, as disclosed in slide 18. Revenue increased 5% from last year with strong growth in both net interest income and non-interest revenues. Net interest income was up 3% primarily driven by solid growth in assets and deposits in Canadian banking, higher contributions from asset liability, management activities, and acquisitions. These increases were partly offset by the negative impact of foreign currency translation, the impact of IFRS 16, and divestitures that closed this quarter. The core banking margin was in line with last year. Higher margins from asset liability management activities offset slightly lower margins in the business lines. Non-interest income grew a strong 8% compared to last year, reflecting higher trading-related revenue, higher underwriting and advisory fees, as well as higher banking and wealth management revenues. These were partly offset by the impact of divestitures and lower investment gains. Expenses were up 4% year-over-year. Higher regulatory and technology costs, other employee costs, and business growth initiatives were partly offset by lower professional and business development expenses, the impact of foreign currency translation, divestitures, and IFRS 16. The all-bank productivity ratio improved 70 basis points to 53.4%, and operating leverage was positive 1.3%. The total PCL ratio was 51 basis points, up one basis point quarter over quarter, and up four basis points year over year. Our PCL ratio on impaired loans was 53 basis points, up four basis points sequentially, and up six basis points from last year. The tax rate remained in line with our outlook for 2020. On slide six, we provide an evolution of our CET1 ratio over the quarter. The bank reported a common equity tier one ratio of 11.4%, up approximately 30 basis points, primarily due to the divestitures which closed during the quarter and strong earnings growth. This was partly offset by good growth in risk-weighted assets, regulatory changes, and share buybacks. The CD1 ratio was also impacted by the changes in pension liability, primarily driven by declining discount rates. <clears throat> Internal capital generation was seven basis points, 
as strong earnings growth was offset by good organic RWA growth. Risk-weighted assets were flat quarter over quarter, but up 3% compared to last year. We repurchased approximately 3.6 million common shares during the quarter at an average price of $74.63 per share. Since May 2018, when we closed our acquisition of Jaroslavsky Fraser, the bank has repurchased and canceled approximately 25 million shares. Turning now to the business line results beginning on slide 7. Canadian banking reported adjusted net income of $908 million, up 5% year-over-year. Loan growth was strong at 6%. In retail lending, residential mortgages grew 5%, personal loans 3%, and credit cards 5%. Meanwhile, business lending grew 12%, with strong double-digit growth in commercial lending. Deposits grew 5%. The net interest margin was down five basis points quarter over quarter and down three basis points year over year, primarily driven by competitive pressures in lending and the impact of IFRS 16. Non-interest income was up 7%, driven by higher credit card and banking revenue. Expenses increased 4%, driven by personal and technology costs to support revenue growth. Canadian banking delivered positive operating leverage of approximately 90 basis points through prudent expense management that was guided by good revenue growth. The productivity ratio improved 30 basis points to 45.4%. The PCL ratio was flat compared to last year as higher impaired provisions were offset by lower performing loan PCLs, primarily due to improved retail portfolio credit quality. Turning to the next slide on international banking, my comments that follow are based on results on an adjusted and constant dollar basis. Earnings of $615 million were down 17% year-over-year, or 7% on pre-tax pre-provision basis. Recall that international banking had strong growth in the last 16 quarters. Excluding the impact of divestitures, earnings were down 4% year-over-year, Last year benefited from tax benefits in Mexico that have now returned to more normal tax rates. Normalizing for these tax benefits, international banking's NIAD grew 4% driven by strong growth in Peru. The benefit of the alignment of reporting period of Mexico in the quarter was offset by the benefit from the alignment of reporting period of Peru in the same quarter last year. Revenue declined 2%. Excluding divestitures, revenue grew 4% year-over-year. The Pacific Alliance countries grew revenues by 5% year-over-year. Net interest margin declined 3 basis points year-over-year to 4.51%, driven by margin compression due to central bank rate changes in Mexico, loan spread compression in Chile, and the impact of IFRS 16. NIM was stable relative to the last quarter as margin compression was offset by the benefit from divestitures that closed this quarter. The NIM remained well within our guidance range of 4.5%, plus or minus 10 basis points. Excluding the impact of divestitures, non-interest income was up 2%, driven by higher capital markets revenue in Chile, partly offset by the gain on sale of a foreclosed asset in the prior year. Expenses were up 3% year-over-year. Excluding divestitures, expenses were up 5% year-over-year, primarily driven by the acquisitions in Peru and the Dominican Republic that closed in the second half of last year. Operating leverage was negative 3.8% or negative 0.8%, excluding the impact of divestitures. This was a transitional quarter for international banking as we reduced our interest in TMB Bank, closed the sale of operations in three countries, and completed the integration of acquisitions in two others. Turning now to our global wealth management segment on slide nine. Earnings of 318 million were up a strong 11% year over year. Revenues were up 5% year over year, or 7% excluding the impact of divestitures, 
reflecting strong AUA and AUM growth and brokerage revenues. Assets under management increased 6% year-over-year, and assets under administration increased 7% year-over-year, reflecting market appreciation and positive net sales and mutual funds. Excluding the impact of divestitures, assets under management and assets under administration year-over growth was 13% and 11% respectively. We are continuing to see strong asset growth and earnings momentum across our advisory and asset management businesses, including Jaroslavsky, Fraser, and MD Financial. Beyond the impact of improved equity markets, AUM growth benefited from net retail investment fund sales of $1.7 billion in the quarter and sustained superior investment results. Over the last five years, 80% of AUM are in the top two quartiles for performance. Expenses grew 2%, primarily reflecting higher business volume. The productivity ratio continues to be industry-leading and improved a further 180 basis points to 62.4%. Moving to slide 10, global banking and markets. Net income of $451 million was up a strong 35% year-over-year and up 11% quarter-over-quarter due to record revenue driven by strong performance in our trading businesses, primarily in fixed income, as well as higher underwriting fees. Despite a continued volatile environment, M&A and advisory pipelines remain strong. Corporate loans grew 6% year-over-year, reflecting continued growth in Canada, with greater than 80% of this growth in investment-grade loans. On the other side of the balance sheet, customer deposits were up a very strong 21%. Net interest income was down 13% year-over-year due to deposit margin compression and lower loan origination fees, partly offset by loan growth. Non-interest income was up a strong 34% year-over-year, driven by strong performance in fixed income trading and underwriting activity. Expenses were up a modest 1% year-over-year due to higher performance-based compensation, reflecting the strong revenue growth this year. Recall that this is a seasonally higher expense quarter for the business. The business expense growth will be guided by revenue growth and focused on generating positive operating leverage for the year. Strong revenue growth combined with prudent expense management contributed to the productivity ratio improving by 850 basis points year over year. I'll now turn to the other segment on slide 11, which incorporates the results of group treasury, smaller operating units, and certain corporate adjustments. The results also include the gains and losses on divestitures and asset liability management activities. My comments that follow are on an adjusted basis. The other segment reported a smaller loss compared to last year, due mainly to higher contributions from asset liability management activities. Quarter over quarter, the other segment reported a lower loss due mainly to higher contributions from asset liability management activities that were partly offset by lower securities gains and higher non-interest expenses. The results in the other segment are in line with previous guidance. I'll now turn it over to Daniel, who will discuss risk management. Thank you, Raj. I will begin my remarks on slide 13. But before I begin, I'd like to draw your attention to the additional disclosure on page 23 of the MDNA, highlighting certain key macroeconomic variables used to estimate the allowance for credit losses for the additional pessimistic scenario that we added this quarter. Now, as of Q1, our credit quality continues to be strong and our underlying credit performance remains stable. As Brian mentioned, our delinquency rates remain stable in our Canadian retail portfolio and continue to improve in our international retail portfolio. Our gill ratios continue to improve across the bank and are in line with our prior guidance following the closing of the divestitures in Puerto Rico and El Salvador. Our net write-off ratio has increased modestly to 54 basis points driven by higher write-offs in global banking markets and a two-basis-point impact from the alignment of the reporting period in Mexico, which was mentioned previously. 
However, it remains well within our risk appetite. We have strong loan loss provision coverage of over eight quarters. The adjusted PCL ratio in Q1 was 51 basis points, up one basis point quarter over quarter, and up four basis points year over year. Higher PCL ratios year over year are largely due to business mix changes driven by acquisitions. Moving now to slide 14. All my comments exclude the impact of the additional pessimistic scenario. On an all-bank basis, total PCLs of $771 million were up 12% year-over-year and up 2% from the last quarter, reflecting the impact of the higher impaired PCLs, partly offset by lower-performing loan PCLs. Provisions on impaired loans increased 18% year-over-year and were up 8% quarter-over-quarter. Higher provisions on impaired loans compared to last year were primarily driven by higher Canadian and international retail provisions, and this was driven by loan growth. Provisions in global banking markets also contributed to the increase after seven consecutive quarters of recoveries over the last eight quarters. Provisions on performing loans declined by $40 million year over year and quarter over quarter. Lower provisions on performing loans compared to last year mainly reflect improvement in credit quality, primarily in international retail, driven in part by our divestitures. This was partially offset by volume growth, a less favorable macroeconomic outlook, and some migration from performing to impaired in global banking and markets. Turning now to gross impaired loans, or GILs, on slide 15, GILs declined 7% quarter over quarter. The GIL ratio continues to trend lower across the bank and has improved both on a quarter over quarter and on a year over year basis. As we previously discussed, the GIL ratio declined 7 basis points quarter over quarter and 13 basis points year over year, primarily due to the impact of divestitures in international banking. So we look back over the past three years, our gross impaired loan ratio has declined from over 100 basis points to 77 basis points today. Next, we see that net formations of 968 million were down 1% versus last quarter and up 3% year over year. The increase compared to prior year relates mostly to portfolio growth as the net formations ratio was stable. And finally, turning to our net write-off ratio. We saw a modest four basis point increase relative to last year, reflecting higher write-offs in global banking markets and the alignment of reporting periods in international banking. Excluding the impact of the alignment of reporting period effect and the elevated write-off in GBM, which we do not anticipate in future quarters, the net write-offs ratio remained stable. In closing, we remain confident in the strong underlying credit quality of our portfolio. I will now turn the call back over to Brian for some closing remarks. Thank you, Daniel. We are pleased with the balanced performance, performance across our business lines to start the year. Strong performance by Canadian banking, global wealth management, and global banking and markets was more than sufficient to offset the impact of divestitures in international banking. This, reflect, this reflects the importance of our diversification both by product and by country across our footprint. I am confident that our core markets in Latin America will again prove resilient and that international banking will achieve its growth targets. Our repositioning efforts, while time-consuming, have been substantial. We are now a leading bank in the Americas with competitive scale and diversification in our six core markets which represent over 85% of the bank's earnings. This was in many ways a transitional quarter for international banking as we closed our last major divestitures and completed important integrations. Our management team is now focused on demonstrating the earnings power of the repositioned bank to our shareholders. I will now pass the call back to Philip. Thank you, Brian. We will now be pleased to take your questions. Please limit yourself to one question and then rejoin the queue to allow everyone the opportunity to participate in the call. 
We'll return at the end to make a few closing remarks after the Q&A session. <coughs> Operator, can we have... The first question is from Doug Young with Desjardins Capital. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. My, my question maybe is with Nacho and just on international banking. I mean, page 21 of the shareholder report gives us the uh, adjusted earnings from Mexico, Peru, Chile, and Colombia. And I think there's a lot more that you can unpack there because I think there's some one-time items last year that impacted Mexico and Peru. So hoping you can give us what was the impact from the tax item in Mexico last year, the Peru realignment, and then you know talk a bit about the uh, how things are going in Chile and the outlook for Chile. Thank you. Sure, Doug. Well, first let me say that uh, international banking, uh, putting things in perspective, has had 18 consecutive quarters of strong assets and revenue growth, delivered positive operating leverage, and we have improved by more than 500 BIPs our productivity index. As Brian mentioned, this is a transition quarter for IB with many moving parts. For example, we are reporting wealth separately for the first time, and it is also important to account for divestitures and FX. So just trying to compare a dog apple to apples in constant FX, this is a low quarter in Q1, as I, as I expected and mentioned in our mainly in our investor day, mainly due to the developments in Chile. In Q120, our earnings are 4% less than the last year. But if you adjust for the Mexico tax benefits that I mentioned, we are growing 4% year over year. And this is our underlying growth of international banking in Q1. I am confident our performance will be stronger from here particularly in the Pacific Alliance countries, and let me explain you why. First, Peru is very strong and will remain strong during the year. This quarter, excluding the one-month lag elimination of Peru last year, Peru is growing earnings by 20%. So what matters really is to understand the trends in Mexico and Chile um, going forward. And I'm very pleased to see the sequential improvement in both countries. Let's start with Chile. Chile was flat year over year at constant, which is better than what I expected and indicated in Investor Day. And um, this is the main reason why international banking is below our 9% medium-term target. However, if you look sequentially, Chile Q over Q increased earnings 19%, and loan growth was 2%, despite the protest at the end of the year, I think this is very good news, and I expect Chile to improve gradually. In the case of Mexico, excluding the tax benefits in the prior year, Mexico is also relatively flat. But Q over Q, earnings in Mexico increased by 6%, and loan growth was very strong at 4% Q over Q. So over 2019, we have increased 50 basis points our market share in Mexico, we expect now need to stabilize and volumes to translate into revenue growth in future quarters. Finally, Colombia had a low quarter, mainly due to the integration that we just completed in November, but we expect Colombia to rebound to more normal levels in Q2 and deliver on our growth commitments for this year. The Caribbean and Central America, after the divestitures, also had a good quarter growing earnings 6%. So in summary, uh, we expect our earnings to grow starting in Q2 and continue to improve gradually to achieve our 2020 outlook of high single-digit growth on a constant dollar basis and delivered positive operating leverage. So your outlook for achieving your 9% plus or high single-digit growth, including Q1 for fiscal 20, that, that, that hasn't changed? Excluding no, divestitures and excluding all the noise. Excluding divestiture at constant effects, I'm confident we will be growing at high single digits in 2020, including Q1. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Robert Sadran with CIBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hello, good morning. Um, Brian, unless I'm mistaken, and I, it's probably possible that I am, um, you had previously suggested something in the area of 11.5 or higher as an operating level for the CT1 ratio. And you're obviously comfortable. You're buying back stock. You're not quite at that level. Can, does, does all the M&A being behind you suggest perhaps you can 
feel comfortable in that 11 to 11 and a half range, or do you still want to be above that 11 and a half over time? How would I start, Bob, uh, on that question? This is Raj. Yeah, we, as we indicated in the investor day, we'd like to operate around 11.5% plus or minus 10 basis points. As you know, pension is one of those that seems to continuously move against us, and you know, this quarter we lost about seven basis points. Buybacks, absolutely, like we have said before, we expect to continue to buy back our stock. As you know, we issued about 34 million shares as part of the acquisition, so that's our first target we'd like to meet and obviously continue going as we generate strong internal capital in this bank. Internal capital generation, which is really our earnings minus our organic risk-weighted asset growth, I would say it'll be in any quarter between 5 and 10 basis points. So we're going to accrete capital for sure. How do you deploy the 5 and 10 basis points depending on how pension moves, for example, and how many shares we buy back will determine at what rate we'd like to operate. But we certainly will operate around the 11.5% range. So, Raj, just to confirm, so you're suggesting a, a sort of run rate capital all else equal of something of 5 to 10, 5 to 10 basis point accretion on a quarterly basis? That's correct, Rob. Okay. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. The next question is from Ibrahim Punawala with Bank of America. Please go ahead. Ibrahim Punawala, your line is now open. Please proceed with your question. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, I was wondering, Raj, if you could address just the outlook for the margin in the Canadian banking segment. Uh, we saw a pretty decent uh, fall-off, and just outlook... Uh, as you expect on a go-forward basis, and if the Bank of Canada ends up cutting interest rates, what's the sensitivity to your margin outlook? And uh, also on the international, is the 4.5% plus or minus still the right way to think about the international NIM? Sure, Ibrahim. I'll start at the all-bank. Overall, as we have mentioned before, you know, we focus on managing the bank's interest rate risk and the balance sheet to minimize the volatility to the all-bank NIM. And this quarter is actually an example of it when you look at it year over year where it's flat, although we saw some margin compression in the two business lines that you just mentioned. Um, you know, if I address Canadian banking first, it's primarily driven by competitive pressures that we're seeing in the market, both in the retail as well as in the commercial segment. And as far as the international banking margin changes go, it's driven by central bank rate changes and, of course, the divestitures in international banking when you compare year over year. The all-bank level, like I mentioned, the NIM was flat. Number of moving parts that impacted the bank's NIM this quarter. Divestitures that closed. IFR 16 is also a big component. As you know, some of those go through the interest expense line. Small, but still about a basis point. But the all-bank NIM really benefited from better asset liability management activities, which we've talked about before. The bank is positioned to be neutral or benefit slightly from interest rate cuts should they happen in Canada or even across the Pacific Alliance. So as we look at the business lines, you might see some margin compression if there are rate cuts, but at the all-bank level, we expect to to offset that through the balance sheet interest rate risk management process that we put in place. So I'd like to say at the all-bank level, we expect them to be stable to maybe slightly lower through 2020, as we indicated in our outlook in November as well as in the investor day. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Sorab Movahedi with BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you. Um, Raj, a bit of a unfair question maybe, but lots of moving parts, a bit of a obviously transition quarter. As you think about the earnings power for the organization, can you talk us through by segment what number you're working off of? as you think about the, uh, the target numbers and the outlook numbers that you have for each segment's uh, growth in 2020? So let me, let me start at the all-bank level, Sora. Like we mentioned at the investor day, adjusting for the divestitures on an EPS basis, we expect to have a 2% growth at the all-bank level by the time we end this year. So obviously, international banking is the one which is most impacted by the divestitures. And we've indicated, you know, high single-digit growth on a constant dollar basis. And that's important because they do have currency changes, particularly if you take Chile. Chile's exchange rate has moved fairly significantly year over year when you compare. So we expect that to be, you know, high single-digit. You could call it 7% in that range on a constant dollar basis. As far as um, Canadian banking is concerned, 
you know, we've talked about mid-single-digit range growth, which could be anything between 4 to 5%. So in line with what you saw this quarter, about a 5% year-over-year sequential growth. And luckily, they don't have any more large moving parts with all the real estate gains out of the way now. Global banking and markets, obviously very strong Q1, driven by you know, a lot of the business changes which we have been working on for the last three years. So stable earnings, we have indicated in the past, it could be anywhere over $400 million on an average when you look across the four quarters. And finally, global wealth management. We expect it to be in this range, $315, $320 million in that range, which sequentially, when you look at it year over year, will equate to between 7 and 8% growth. So overall, I'd say the bank would grow 2% from an EPS basis, uh, which is you know adjusted for divestitures, like I mentioned. And the outlook that we gave for each of the business lines is consistent with what we spoke about in November. None of it has changed. And the basis that you're working off of in each segment, so for example, in international banking, it, the quarter you came in at 615 on a Canadian dollar basis. Mm-hmm. Is that that's a number that is a clean number, in your opinion? No, the 615 you got to adjust for it had divestiture impact, which sorry benefit, which is really a Q1 since all the divestitures are now closed, which is about $55 million. And of course, the one month lag that we talked about on Mexico. So from there, it'll start growing sequentially starting from Q2 onwards and accelerating in Q3 and Q4, like Nacho mentioned, as Chile comes comes back to more normalized growth levels and Mexico is showing good sequential growth. So the starting point should be, if you want to really use the starting point for Q1 for international banking, excluding these two items, it's more like the 525, $530 million range, but growing pretty rapidly from there as we look for the rest of the year. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Gabriel Deshane with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Uh, just want to ask you, uh, well, thanks, Nacho, for the uh, uh, previous answer you gave on on the outlook for your your, your countries, I'm, I'm wondering about uh, how the uh, you know the coronavirus thing affects your uh, your outlook, if at all. I look across the Pacific Alliance, China's number one or number three export market for these uh, countries. If you're seeing anything yet, or or if, you know, if it's too early, if you can talk about that, please. Gabriel, Daniel here. I'll start, and then I'll hand over to Nacho. First, let me say on the coronavirus, it, it is an evolving file, but our first and foremost concern is for the health and safety of our employees, and our management team has responded swiftly and thoughtfully throughout the whole enterprise in this regard. Secondly, we've had a very strong focus here on the operational continuity by the senior management response committees throughout our whole footprint so that we can ensure the continuity of all our services to all of our customers. Then, of course, from there, we turn to the financial risks. I want to say, first off, that we have no direct exposure to the acutely affected areas in China. We do look then through, as you indicate, to the second order effects, such as the impact of lower Chinese consumer demand on global demand, such as global supply chain impacts and whatnot. And on this point, I'd say we are continuing to do our stress analysis, look at the scenarios and look at the evolving data, but it is too early to tell on whether there be a material impact from COVID-19 on our business. Our stress scenarios would indicate that we do not think it is material at this juncture. When we turn to our footprint, for instance, and you point to Chile, we're very pleased with Chile's results. And with that, I'll hand it over to Brian to comment on. Yeah, Gabe, just to add to that, if if you look at Chile, Chile is a very diversified economy. Um, The market tends to look at it as a proxy for copper, which really, when you look at it, mining only represents 12.5% of Chilean GDP, and that contribution has been declining for 10 straight years. So my point is the Chilean economy is a very well-diversified economy. Approximately 29% of the exports, that's all copper, go to China. And then the U.S. market would be the second largest market, and the rest is very diversified from there. And I, I would highlight, as we, when we've gone through periods like this, is that keep in mind that Chile is the world's low-cost producer of, of copper, which is certainly beneficial. So uh, the theme here is that these economies are well diversified. The major markets are either the U.S. or China or, or, or reverse the other way. Okay, and and I guess Daniel, while I, I, thanks for that, Brian. Uh, Daniel, 
and I don't think this is unique to Scotia at all, but uh, for Q2, should we expect some noise in the Stage 2 provisions uh, as it relates to this, this issue, Corona, COVID-19, and the, uh, the rail blockades? I would say this juncture, Gabriel, probably too early to tell what the impact will be. I'll come back to that, to that point. Um, we'll continue to monitor it. If there is impact, it would, it would still show up in the performing PCL line item. Uh, but at this point, we don't think it's material on either file. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Mario Mandanka with CD Securities. Please go ahead. Good morning. Maybe this is Sir Brian or Raj. When you, you made the point that you'd be active in the buyback or you'd expect to continue to buyback stock, when you look at your CT1 ratio, do you look at it solely um, from Scotia's perspective, sort of in isolation, 11.5 makes sense to you in the context of your risks you have, or do you do you actually look at it across all your competitors, both Canada and the U.S., and does the relative um, tier one ratio make a difference in your decision process? Yeah, that's a good question, Mario. And, and uh, you know, we look at it on, uh, you know, we look at the U.S. banks, which have been taking their common equity tier one num numbers down and have been very active in their buybacks. And we look at our Canadian peers. Um, and obviously it has a lot to do with our risk appetite and the quality of our assets, which we believe are very high. And, uh, you know, we, we look at stress tests to see how it's going to impact different capital, uh, our capital number under a, a variety of different scenarios. So, um, you know, we, we, we look at uh, the competitive landscape and what we need to run our business effectively. And, you know, we have, as you know, different optionality. We can grow, grow organically, we can acquire businesses, or we can buy back our own shares. And the reality is we've done a combination of all those things. And uh, to show you the, 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 our, the power of the bank in terms of capital generation, you know, while we've gone through this acquisition and divestiture period, as Raj said, we bought back 25 million shares of the 34 million shares we've issued. And we'll continue at these levels to be a, a buyer of our stock. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Manny Grauman with Cormark Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. I just wanted to follow up on Sarb's question and just um, from an enterprise uh, point of view, uh, given the, the stronger start to the year in terms of uh, especially GBM and also the, the positive commentary from international banking, why is it not reasonable to expect better than 2% 2 EPS growth um, uh, for the year? What are the key sort of risk factors that you're, you're watching as the year progresses? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll start there, Manny. I think it's a it's a good question. It's been a great start, so you know, absolutely, there's no doubting that GBM has done very well this quarter. But as I mentioned earlier, this quarter does have a little over fifty million dollars of divestiture-related income, which which is going to go away for the remaining quarters. But the point remains that on a normalized basis, the remaining quarters are going to continue to grow for the rest of the year. But a forty cent EPS impact to start with on the divestitures and growing by two percent, like we said in the investor day, equates to more than seven percent growth for the whole year, which is in excess of our medium term objectives. So if you look at it from that perspective, particularly when most of our industry peers are expected to grow between three and four percent, we think that would be extremely strong growth if and we expect to deliver that for the remaining quarters. So it's a good start. We're very optimistic. We feel very good to start the year this way. But we'll see how the, the quarters evolve. We expect international banking to do significantly better than this quarter as Chile you know, starts getting back to its normal growth rate. Um, if you talk about risks, you know, GBM is a market-facing business. So is our wealth business. So we're benefiting from you know, some of the good market movements, apart from our business strategy playing out the way we think it should play out. The Canadian bank is you know, off some of the real estate gains and so on, solid volume growth we see. I talked a bit about margin earlier, so we're not very concerned about it. The international bank, when it starts performing the way it's been doing for the last 16 quarters, we're very optimistic to finish at the 2% growth rate that we talked about. And at this time, like I said, it equates to 7% or greater than 7% growth on a normalized basis. Thanks for that. Thank you. The next question is from Scott Chan with Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Just uh, 
just going, kind of going back to the pre-announced charges, specifically the DVA and the, uh, the ACLs on the pessimistic scenario, um, maybe perhaps you can uh, comment on the thought process of putting that through uh, non-core uh, in the results, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I'll just leave it there. Sure, Scott, that's right. So let me start on the three items. So the first one is the fourth scenario, as we call it, which is, you know, severe pessimistic scenario and so on. So we could have done one of two things. At the time of implementation in 2017, if we were as wise as we are today, we would have probably included it in the transition adjustment and had four scenarios. As you know, the, you know, the practices around the world has evolved around how they look at these pessimistic, frankly, all the scenarios. And we have basically chosen to move to the approach that many of our European banks do, where they do multiple scenarios, not just the three that most of our peers do over here. So we looked at it, and really we looked at it from the perspective of saying if we stressed it really to a highly pessimistic level, from a balance sheet perspective, it's only 3% on our loan loss provisioning, which is about $150 million. So for us, we looked at it as something which is a one-off methodology change, which is not going to repeat, and we expect our PCL ratio to remain you know, around the 51 basis points rates, which is the adjusted base for the rest of the year. So this is a one-time pickup from our perspective. So we decided to adjust. When you look at the other two items that we adjusted, one of which being the software write-off, it's a third-party vendor software which depends on another third party. So we had limited ability to control. It's the right thing to do from an accounting perspective to take the charge off. And again, it's a one-time item. It's about uh, 40 million, sorry, $50 million pre-tax or 40 hours after tax. So that to us is a one-off software which we had to do the right thing because we had to transition to a better software and a newer version that we have to use. Finally, XVA. XVA, as you know, is a component of derivative valuation, and it affects uncollateralized OTC derivatives, primarily in the GVM Capital Markets Division. If you go back to 2014, XVA was significantly revised to include what they call funding-related adjustments at that time, but there wasn't a standardized global approach. Over the years, market practices have evolved, and we implemented a new centralized valuation platform, provides better modeling, you know, data aggregation capabilities, and so on. So it really reflects the adoption of an enhanced fair value methodology that relates to uncollateralized OTC derivatives, very much aligned to current market practices, and also, I believe, is a one-time adjustment to how you do valuation of derivatives. So that's a common theme. We believe these are all one-time, not repeatable, Fairly significant, that's why we called it out and adjusted. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is a follow-up question from Ibrahim <coughs> Punawala with Bank of America. Please go ahead. Hi, thank, thanks for taking my question again. Uh, just had a question, Brian, around this return on equity. Uh, you talked at the investor day, your 14% plus, percent plus uh, target for the enterprise in terms of ROE, highlighted the higher ROEs in the Pacific Alliance. But when I look at the Canadian segment, international segment, ROEs have gradually come down. And when we look at that 13.9% you reported for this quarter, just talk to us around your outlook for in the current environment, do, do we expect a meaningful improvement on the ROE front driven by the deals and synergies coming off of that or just maintaining around 14% would be good enough in this uh, current macro backdrop? Yeah, thanks, Ibrahim. It's, for our medium-term targets, an ROE of 14% plus has been publicly stated. Uh, we had a, an ROE, as you can see, of 13.9% this quarter. We think, we think uh, as, as the bank uh, has absorbed these acquisitions and dealt with the divestitures, that this is a 15% plus ROE bank, and that's what we're striving for. Uh, I talked a little bit about that in Investor Day last month in, in Santiago, Chile. So the quality of the assets of the bank have improved. The earnings power of the bank has improved, and you'll continue to see that quarter by quarter here. So you think the 15% plus is kind of something that we can expect Scotia to get close to maybe over the next year or so? Well, I, I think it's, it's farther out than a year, uh, but, you know, you're going to see ROE continually improve quarter by quarter here, and that's, that's a function of, of stronger profitability, better expense management. We can certainly move our productivity 
uh, performance in Mexico better, in Chile better, in, in the Canadian bank we can be better. And as I said, higher quality earnings are going to drive the ROE. So we think we're a 15% plus ROE bank over time. Thanks for the, thanks for the color, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Steve Terrio with Eight Capital. Please go ahead. <coughs> Thanks very much. I uh, wanted to touch <coughs> excuse me, on the Canadian banking for a moment, for likely for Dan. Commercial loan growth was strong at 12%. First time you've gotten well into double-digit range. I know that's been a focus uh, for you, Dan, off the hop. Can you talk a little bit about where you're making headway? Uh, and is it uh, should we expect double-digit growth now through 2020, now that you're getting some... Some, uh, some enhanced traction there. Hi, Steve. Dan, thank you for the question. As you highlighted, this is an area of focus for us for the last number of quarters because we see ourselves as being under-indexed in the segment. And in certain parts of the business bank, particularly in the mid-market, we think we have specific opportunity to um, uh, gain share from competitors and have been adding sales capacity, as you've heard, for the last couple of quarters to do that. I'm pleased with this growth rate number. Uh, I think it's fair to say that across the sectors and the provinces we've been talking about, the growth has been uh, broad-based. Should the growth decline a little bit going forward, I wouldn't be surprised by that, but this was a strong start to the year with customers we've known for a long time, so it was a good start. Thank you. Thank you. There are no further questions on the line. Thank you, everyone, for participating in our call today. On behalf of the entire management team, we want to thank our investors and analysts for participating at our Investor Day in Chile. I also want to thank all our employees for their focus and hard work to deliver to all our stakeholders and our customers and shareholders for their loyalty and support. We remain focused on delivering against our strategy and achieving consistent long-term growth. We look forward to speaking with you again at our 2020, sorry, Q220 call on May the 26th. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.